So as we celebrate, loud voices, as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, we do it a little bit differently on Easter. We don't have a, a sermon time the way we normally would. We celebrate in song, we celebrate in prayer, we read the Gospels, and we'll talk about it because you can't get a preacher up here with a microphone and have him not talk, so that's going to happen. But rather than our normal setting, it'll be a little bit different. So you might notice in your program, rather than the outline that I would usually give you that you could fill in blanks, uh, we actually have sort of an order of service. That's kind of weird for real life. We don't normally do that very often. So uh, as you look through there, you'll see uh, some different things. The italics are just kind of logistical, moving things along. Uh, and anytime you see the bold, Shelly will guide you through. But anytime you see the bold, that's a time for us to sing together. We want to be <coughs> raising our voices together. It's actually something that's commanded by Scripture. God doesn't say sound good. He says lift your voice, make a joyful noise. Celebrate from our hearts. As we work through this, we're going to talk about what the gospel is and why this resurrection matters. We'll read through a fairly lengthy passage, maybe a little longer than we normally read through together as we look at the crucifixion. But the crucifixion isn't our focus today. Friday isn't our focus today. Sunday's our focus. The empty tomb, because we serve a risen Savior. He's risen today. It's the traditional greeting of the church since the early times that in celebrating this resurrected Christ, we would greet one another by saying, He is risen, and the, the uh, church would respond, He is risen indeed. Let's try that. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Oh, that sounds so beautiful. So many voices joined together to celebrate. And, and the Hebrew people continued on through the nation of, of uh, the, through the Jewish nation as they continued. This people recognized the importance of repetition. So when you read the Psalms, you see parallelism that is repeating a point. And when you see a point repeated, just like when we repeat it, just like when moms and dads tell their kids over and over again to do something, you can take away from that that there's power, there's emphasis. And the number three sort of symbolizes a completion in the Hebrew. And so the church would do this three times. Like this. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. That's a beautiful thing for me to stand here and hear you say. Because he is risen indeed. This Jesus who died is now today, this moment, alive. And interceding for this, his people. Yeah, that's worth clapping for. We'll, we'll always clap for Jesus. That's an exciting thing. So with this bit of in instruction and introduction as far as how we're going to do this, I'm going to invite my brother Chuck to come up here uh, and lead us through a prayer for needs. Uh, we, we wrestled with this. Well, we're gonna, we know we're going to have a lot of guests on Easter. Maybe we should just talk about it and not do it. But, you know, this is one of the things that the church is commanded to do, to lift one another up in prayer. So as we do this together, we are participating in the same process of praying that the church has always shared, caring enough for one another to mention each other by name before the throne of God. Chuck? Good morning, everyone. We all here real life know what this is that's inside of our bulletins. It's uh, for us to... 
take home and keep our brothers and sisters in prayer all week long. <coughs> now let's take our hearts to the Lord. Heavenly Father, uh, we just ask that uh, all of our leaders and our, our caretakers are all watched over by you as they uh, go through their, their works for the week in protecting us and serving us and in uh, caring for our health. We lift up uh, all, the, all the folks on this list here. There's, there's so many, Lord. Uh, we just lift all those that are, that are sick. We lift them up to you and ask that you would, you would heal them. Those who have been injured, we ask that you would heal them. We ask that, uh, that you give the people, the, the nurses, the doctors, in some cases the families who care for these people, give them the strength and the will to help these people. And we ask this all in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. celebrate what we call Easter, this Resurrection Sunday, then it might be important for us to recognize why it matters. Why is this a big deal? We talk about the gospel, the good news, the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. But if we don't understand the whole story, then that good news doesn't mean that much. This is bigger than church. It's bigger than religion. This is ultimate reality. Make no mistake, the God of the Bible claims that there is one truth. One way to have a relationship with Him. There is eternal life for everyone. Where we spend that eternal life depends on who we know. Who we're in a relationship with. Before we get into the rest of this, before we look at the crucifixion, before we sing more songs about it, before we talk about the glory of the resurrection or our coming King, we need to go all the way back to the dawn of creation. We need to go all the way back to, in the beginning, God. We need to recognize what the gospel actually is. Many of you are familiar, if you've been here for any length of time, or if you're familiar with Dare to Share, I love to steal their acronym because I think it works really well to capture the whole story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And they use the acronym for the word gospel to tell what the gospel is. And it starts with G. God created us to be with Him. If we go all the way back to Genesis, and you can turn there if you'd like, we're going to... Bounce through this. This will be one of the few parts of the, of the service today where we will look at multiple scriptures together. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, God creates everything. We're not going to walk through all that, but it starts with nothing, and chaos, and God creates everything and brings order. And when God does that, He does something unique for humanity. He, he creates all of the physical world. He creates the animals, and it's all good. 
It's a beautiful, wonderful thing, which right from the very beginning throws away any, any Gnostic idea, any kind of an idea that, that says, oh, matter is evil, only the spiritual matters. No, no, it's all connected. God says the physical creation is good, and he puts us here in it. Starting in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, in verse 26, something different. Same day, same creative act, something different. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we see in the beginning, at this very outset, God has a special purpose for humanity. Humanity alone bears the image of God. We are made uniquely like Him in a way that no other part of creation is. All of it flows from Him. All of it finds itself in Him and is in some way a reflection of the nature and character of God, but in a unique way. Humanity alone carries his likeness. With that in mind, God put us in charge of things, which means that those who know him should be most concerned about the planet and the ecology of our, of our world. That's important. Don't ever let anybody tell you it's not. Christians are the most, should be, the most conscious of that. We have a direct mandate from God to take care of the planet. There's more than taking care of the planet. This planet will one day be destroyed. That's going to happen. You're not going to stop it. No amount of fossil fuels is going to change the plan. God's going to do what God's going to do. And He will reboot the system with a brand new creation, a new heavens, a new earth, a new order. He will do that. You and I will not. But notice what happens here. See, God creates us in His image to be with Him. There is a relational aspect to this. Chapter 2 of Genesis goes through kind of the, the details, so to speak. It's not a science textbook, but it walks us through the relational nature of God creating man from the dust and woman from the man and walking with them, having a fellowship with them. God created humanity, all of us, each of us, individually and collectively, to be His, to be with Him in perfect intimacy. At the end of chapter 2, we see that state. After He creates woman from man, The man says in verse 23 of chapter 2, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be woman, for she was taken out of man. That's why a, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. 
Notice this last verse of chapter 2, though. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. It wasn't simply that they didn't have clothes. There was that. But they felt no shame. The connotation of the Hebrew here is that they were naked unto one another. In other words, no barriers between them. Nothing to hide. Nothing to be ashamed of. No sin, no flaw, no deception. That's the relationship that God created for humanity to have with one another. No separation, no division, no hatred, perfect intimacy. Because it's a reflection of our relationship with Him in perfect intimacy. And He walked among them. But then chapter 3 happens. This is a problem. God created us to be with Him, but oh, our sin separates us from God. Chapter 3, sin enters the equation. You know the story. Serpent shows up in the garden, has a little chat with Eve. Says, did God really say that? She said, no, God didn't really say that. God said this, but she got it wrong too. So then he suckers her into taking a bite of, of the fruit, right? We don't know. People say it's an apple. We don't know what it was. It doesn't matter. The point is, there was one rule. One rule only. Every other choice you could possibly make was good. Except for this. Because this one rule disobeyed the Creator who forged you in His image and made you for a relationship with Him. And the one rule, we blew it. Now Adam was with her somehow, whether he saw it and just didn't step up and do anything, or came along later, but he was with her. And they both ate. Interestingly, the Bible holds Adam primarily responsible for the sin. But Adam, as Eve's head, as our head, passed that on to all of us. And since that moment in chapter 3, when sin entered the system, everything fell and was cursed. When we see climate change, when we see the, the decay of matter, we see death, sickness, cancer, division in our families, betrayal, deception, dishonesty, fear, Depression, despair, suicide, all of the things that come that make this world a dark place come from chapter 3. And they were passed on to each of us. It's our sin. Not their sin, not the sin, not just sin. It's my sin and your sin that separate us from God. Sin that is in us from the time we are conceived. We're conceived in sin, according to Psalm 139. We see in ourselves, without a checklist, that we are corrupted. We know this. We have to talk ourselves out of it. So we work really hard in our postmodern society to create a new set of rules. That means there are no rules. There is no truth. There is no objective standard. There can't really be a God. And if there is a God, then He wants me to be happy. Whatever that might mean to me. But God has an objective standard. The standard is Himself. Perfection, holiness. That's what we were created for in His likeness, in His image. Sin in me 
produces sin from me. Because I am a sinner, I do sinful things. Because I have sin in my heart, in my soul's genome, so to speak, that sin comes out in my actions, my words, my thoughts, my behaviors. We get focused externally, but it really starts inside. And that sin separates us from God. We're created, every one of us, for a relationship with Him. That's our reason for being. That is the reason every single human being exists. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian, if you're a Muslim, if you're an atheist, if you're a Hindu. does not matter one bit. Every single person ever created, ever, in the history of the universe, always created for the purpose of God's glory, of an intimate relationship with Him. And our sin wrecks that. Sin can't be in God's presence. Well, because God created us to be with Him, and our sin separates us from God, we have this natural inclination inside of us, this hunger for something more. Ecclesiastes says, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that God has set eternity in our hearts. There is, as the philosophers say, a God-shaped hole in us. And we try to fill it with everything. We try to fill it with all sorts of different activities or substances or, or relationships. Something to make me feel like I'm supposed to feel. Call it pursuing pleasure. Avoiding pain. Trying to find significance and meaning in life. Trying to find myself. That sin that separates me from God leaves me trying to find a way to God. And that's what religion does. It controls our behavior. There's a, a, a sociological benefit to even pagan religions that don't recognize the God of the Bible. There's a sociological benefit to the binding back of behavior from religion. Yes. The problem is, all of this trying to get to God always falls short. God created us to be with Him. Our sins separate us from God. The S reminds us that sin cannot be removed by good deeds. So we get, right here in Genesis, we get creation. We see that, that sin enters the system. And then the rest of the Old Testament is trying to give us this picture trying to give us this idea that we can't fix it ourselves. I can't have this scale and think, well, if I try hard enough, God's going to see that that's good. I'm doing my best. He knows that I'm flawed. That's fine. But if I can jump farther than you, or you can jump farther than me, that's not going to change things if we're trying to jump across the Grand Canyon. My brother Keith, once upon a time, could jump pretty well. And not anymore, so we're going to give up on that. He lets Griffin do all that stuff now. And Keith could jump farther than me. But if we go out there and we're, we're going to give it our best shot, we're going to take our, our best running long jump, try to get across the Grand Canyon, we both end up splattered at the bottom. Nobody can do that. It's the same idea. Isaiah says that our best, our best righteousness, is like filthy rags compared to God. Paul writes in Romans that all of us have sinned. 
Every one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of God's righteous standard. We jump as far as we can and we hit the bottom because of our sin. The only way for us to get this rescue, the only way for us to get the red off our ledger is for someone to take that debt. Because here's the problem. Sin has to be paid for. And it has to be paid for with my life. The same Paul that wrote in Romans 3.23 that everybody has sinned also wrote in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is, you know it, what is it? Say that again. That's a heavy word. Every time someone you love dies, shoot, every time somebody you don't even know dies, that is a reminder to each one of us that that is our state. Death exists because sin exists. It doesn't mean that individual physically died because of egregious sin that they've been hiding from everybody. Oh, they died, they must be terrible sinners. No, we're all terrible sinners, therefore we all shall die. That's what goes. And that death is bigger than just physical death. It's the death that God was talking about to Adam and Eve when he said, don't eat from this fruit or you'll die. When they did, they began the process of physical death, but they immediately were plunged into spiritual death. From that time to this, every human being born was born physically alive, but spiritually dead. Sin cannot be removed by good deeds. God tried, I say tried, God doesn't try, God does. There's no trying with God. There's trying with me, not with God. But in his efforts to communicate the reality of eternity to us, God set aside a special people. Because God deals with his people both individually and collectively. So when all of humanity fell, God said, okay, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to redeem them. He said this all the way back in Genesis 3. I will send one. In fact, let's take a look at it. If you still have Genesis 3 marked, you can see it. Shelly, I'm already off my script. I've got to get going here. We're going to get this, this truth handled because it's big. Let's pick up with verse 11. God said to the man and the woman in verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Don't misunderstand. They knew they didn't have clothes. They didn't have shame before. Now they thought about it. It mattered. Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? Clearly rhetorical. The man said, uh, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. It's her fault. Blame her, God. First passing of the buck. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. It's not my fault. And we've been doing that ever since. We try to absolve ourselves of responsibility by blaming somebody else, by hiding from the sin. I didn't do anything wrong. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, hatred, between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring, her seed, and yours. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the first prophecy of Messiah in the scripture. You see, God promises a champion right here in 315. We're not even out of the garden yet. And God says, I will send a champion, a warrior, a redeemer, a victor who will come and will crush the serpent's head. Yes, you'll bruise him, but you will lose. Ever since then, the entire story of the Bible, the entire story of humanity is a quest to find the serpent crusher. God created us to be with him. Our sins separate us from him. Sins can't be removed by good deeds. God called Abraham, Abram of Ur, and he later changes his name to Abraham to be the father of many nations. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to make many nations out of you. And I'm going to give your people a land of their own. Now he promises the land of Canaan, but it's more. There is a redemption involved. And he promises through Abraham that the, the seed of the woman would come. One would come who would redeem his people. And the people grow. They end up in slavery in, in Egypt. You've seen the movies. Hopefully you've read the scriptures. Oh, you've seen the movies. And then God sends another deliverer named Moses, the lawgiver. Moses comes and he gives the people the communication from God of the law. And all that God teaches through Moses is designed to point us forward to Christ. All the horrible, ugly, disgusting, bloody sacrifices that we see detailed in, in Exodus and Leviticus. These are all to give us the, the clear picture that sin is horrible and hideous and disgusting and deadly. And the price of forgiveness is bloodshed and death because that's the nature of sin. And it must be paid for. It must be, to use the theological word, atoned for. That's what the sacrifices did. They temporarily would purchase forgiveness. <clears throat> but those animals that were sacrificed, animals who were not dying for their sin, but for yours and mine, for each person that would offer, that could only cover for a bit. And the priest once a year would go in and make sacrifice for the whole nation. But first he had to make sacrifice for himself. Because you have to deal with your own sin. None of that was sufficient. It could not, according to the writer of Hebrews, continually, eternally, perfectly remove sin. And so we still have a problem. Sin can't be removed by good deeds. But then, then the Gospels come. And we see a picture of the serpent crusher arriving. The one who was born of woman 
Not with a human father, but conceived by the Holy Spirit. God in the flesh, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who came to pay, that's the P in gospel, paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. That's what we're celebrating today. He died in my place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Let that sink in for a minute. Jesus had no sin, and He became your sin and my sin, so that when Jesus died on the cross, because He didn't have any sin of His own to pay for, He could pay for ours. He was the only one who could do this. He paid for our sin. And to prove that He was who He said He was, three days later, He rose up out of that grave. That's what we celebrate today. He rose out of that grave victorious over death so that you and I could have new, real, eternal life in Him. We are raised with Him if we have died with Him. Paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. E, everyone who trusts in Him alone has eternal life. If you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 3. Familiar for most of you? I did not include John chapter 3 in your program today, but I think you can remember it. John 3. Now, in John chapter 3, Jesus is meeting with a Pharisee, a leader. Those who opposed Jesus and want him dead already. They, they want to get rid of this guy. But Nicodemus is one of them, and he's intrigued. He wants to know more. So he meets with Jesus, but he does it under cover of darkness so that he doesn't, you know, ruffle the wrong feathers. <clears throat> and Jesus says some pretty provocative things to him. John 3, 3, Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they're old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water, natural birth, and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. That's how we know we're talking about natural birth. But the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. Come on. I added that part. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you don't understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know. We testify to what we have seen, but still you people don't accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you don't believe how then will you believe it if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, a reference to a time when God delivered them from a plague, when they made an image of a snake, and when they looked up at the snake lifted up, they would live. Jesus is saying about himself, he will be lifted up. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. You're familiar with verse 16. For, because God 
so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes, whoever trusts, if you have a Bible that you could write and you might write trusts there. It's not mental assent to the fact that Jesus existed. That's historically documented and easy to deal with. But whoever trusts in him, everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him, trusts in him, puts all their hope in him, sits and rests in him like you're sitting in that chair right now. Whoever does that is not condemned. But whoever does not believe, check this out, stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That's our default. We are already condemned. We need a way to get out of that condemnation. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. There's a memory verse printed for you in, uh, in your program. I would encourage you to commit this to your memory, commit it to your heart, and to act on it. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess we use the old rendition or the old edition of the NIV because I think it's a better wording the newer one if you have one of the, the Bibles that we provide here or if you're online the newer one says if you declare with your mouth and that's good it's right but we understand it differently in English than we do with the confess same word homologeo this, this Greek word it means very specifically to agree with to speak something without that comes from within. So when we align our thinking with truth and we speak that out, that's what this confession idea is. When you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, in other words, He is the master, the ruler of your life, you're no longer in control, He's in control, that's what He's talking about. When you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you got to get public. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not might be saved, you will be saved. Everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life. Later on in John, in John 10:10, 10, 10, he says, I've come to give them life, abundant, life to the full. L. Life with Jesus starts now and lasts forever. This is a beautiful reality. It's not we're going to have some nifty thing later on when we die. It's right now a fullness, an abundance of real, meaningful, significant life. Everything will be perfect. No, that's not what it says. Everything will be real. Some of you uh, may remember a movie from the early 2000s called The Matrix. The greatest Keanu Reeves movie ever made. Long list, right? Anyhow, so... I digress. The concept of the, of the matrix is that there is the world that we perceive, but there is a world behind that that is real. 
The world in the movie that we perceive is essentially a program, a construct. And we're trained to see things that aren't actually there. It seems real, but it isn't. But there's a greater, deeper reality that may not be as pretty, but it's the real thing. And once we align ourselves with the reality of real life, all the doors are unlocked, all the doors are open to us, and we can see and think and move and breathe in ways we never could before. When we align ourselves with reality, and we embrace what Jesus did on the cross to take my sin on Himself, so that I could be raised with Him in a newness of life. And all of a sudden, literally all of a sudden, I am transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And life begins now. And it never ends. When my body dies, my soul lives on with Him. And it doesn't involve the you know sitting around on clouds playing a harp and eating angel food cake and drinking Pepsi. That's not that's not what we're talking about. Meaningful life, greater, better, richer, deeper, more active than you can imagine, more than we have now, more than we've ever seen, more than we can construct in our minds. God, according to Paul in Ephesians 3, is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. That's not talking just about this life. It's talking about everything full package. But we have to choose to trust Him. We have to receive Him. This is the gospel. It starts with the bad news. You are condemned. Justly condemned for the sin that is in you by your nature and by your choice. And every single one of us starts there. John 1.12 says that as many as receive Him, to them He gives the right to become children of God. When we choose to trust what Jesus did on the cross in His death and His resurrection, and we find victory for our lives, that's the core reality that I want you to come away with today. From everything that we do, you should see this. Jesus defeated death for us so that we could have real life in Him. And if you will choose Him, if you will confess from deep within you that Jesus is your Lord, He's calling the shots. He's running the show. It ain't your show anymore. And you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. His promise is that you will be saved. This is the Gospel. There is a powerful reality that Shelley's going to come and sing about in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. terrible thing when a preacher lies on a Sunday morning, especially on Easter. I told you I wasn't going to have a sermon and I just stole one.
So I apologize to those of you with young children who were perhaps overwhelmed by the length of that. (laughs) The verdict is not guilty. From Romans chapter 7, continuing into chapter 8, Paul, having observed his own struggle with sin, says in verse 21, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh... God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. How did Jesus do that? He did it by dying in our place. after he was betrayed by a friend, unjustly arrested, convicted in a sham trial of invalid charges. He was sent before the Roman governor of the area, Pontius Pilate. I'm going to read from John chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you, excuse me, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. 
Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which is in Aramaic, it's called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign. The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here's your son. And to the disciple, here's your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Luke chapter 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to, the, uh, to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Ma uh, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. 
But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away, <coughs> wondering to himself what had happened. In very short order, Peter would know. And they would all realize that Jesus had indeed been raised from the dead just as he promised. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. Later, the Apostle Paul, as he wrote to the Corinthian church, said this. <clears throat> this is from chapter 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I have preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. After that He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living at the time of the writing, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. He goes on to say, <clears throat> excuse me, he goes on to say in verse 50 of the same chapter, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Praise God, it's been taken by the risen Christ. As we close out this service today, it is crucial that we recognize that we must choose Jesus as Lord. Our default is condemnation. We must surrender ourselves to Him. Make Him our Master, our Ruler, our Sovereign, our King. So that we can have life, real, abundant, eternal life in Him. <laughs> Because he rose to give us life. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. 
He is risen indeed. Amen.